0: Welcome to the TV Campfire.
1: Mm, Welcome back.
0: Most definitely. It has been a minute. Or a pandemic.
1: (laughs) We are your pseudo-hosts and executive directors of ATX-TV. I'm Caitlin. I'm Emily. And last we left you, we were doing an original series about our pivot to a virtual festival in 2020. Now over halfway through 2021, we've done a second virtual festival launched a membership program, and hosted countless events, virtual, of course.
0: As the world is opening up and we're all figuring out where we want to go, or not, what we want to do, or not, the one thing we know is that we still want to talk about TV.
1: We absolutely do. I also know that in season 10 festival that just wrapped on June 20th, had some of the best programming we have ever had. Truly, it may be the proudest I've ever been of our programming as a whole. Each conversation was either moving, emotional, thought-provoking, entertaining, or all of that rolled into one.
0: Completely agree. And if you haven't heard, we have vowed to celebrate Season 10 all year, all the way up to Season 11. So with that, let the celebration continue.
1: To start it off, the reason we're here, we're going to be releasing select conversations from the festival here on the podcast for your audio enjoyment. You can also check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash for the visual companion pieces.
0: First up, showrunner State of the Union. We did a version of this panel at the first virtual festival in 2020, and it was so inspiring. We felt the need to do a second iteration because we need strong leaders in TV to tell us what the current state of television is. (laughs) This was live on June 18th, 2021, and we can't wait for you to hear from these incredibly talented and fearless TV leaders.
1: So with that, enjoy Showrunner State of the Union. Hello. Here we go again, y'all. The second weekend of ATX TV season 10 has begun. We are live on South Congress. I'm Caitlin McFarland. This is Emily Gibson, your co hosts, co founders, co fans of all the people you're about to hear from. You know, I love being co founders because mm-hmm. I love sharing the weight with
0: you. Sure. I don't know that I want to be a co fan, though, because we both deeply love all these individuals as whole people. So I feel like for this one time, I'm going to take Waco
1: and just say full fans. Yeah. We don't have to share <laughs> this. So here's the thing. As most of you know, last year we did ATX TV from the couch and one of our most electric panels was the live showrunner state of the union panel. It was a no holds barred conversation about the current state of running a TV show. And after the year we've had, you can only imagine what they have to say
0: today. So we've brought back the same moderator, Joanna Robinson from Vanity Fair, and one of the same panelists, the amazing Robin Thede, so they can help lead the charge
1: and really get into it. But before we go and let them all get to it, because this is live, you get to ask questions too. So please put them in the chat as soon as you want to. We'll be gathering them and getting them to Joanna. There you go. Let's bring
0: out Joanna. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello. We're going to hand it over to you and let you introduce the panelists. All right, my last
2: ATX panel of the year. So sad for me, um, but I'm sure if folks have been watching at home, they're probably tired of seeing my face, um, but I'm so excited for this one. This is my favorite panel last year, um, so I'm not going to waste any time. I'm just going to get out here, the people that you want to see. So uh, let us welcome to the panel Angela King, who is a showrunner, executive producer of The Walking Dead. Hi, Angela. Hi. Hey, Hi. Joanna. We also want to introduce Stephen Cannells, uh, Kanels of Showrunner, Executive Producer, and Director of Pose. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Joanna. I love your shirt so much. Oh, um, thank you. I also want to welcome to the panel a Head Writer, Executive Producer of Loki, Michael Waldron. Hello, Michael. Hi. Hello. And then, Showrunner, Executive Producer of Blackish, Courtney Lilly is also here. Hi.
3: Hi. How's it going?
2: and last but certainly not least the uh, returning fave from last year's panel creator showrunner executive producer star of a black lady sketch show it is robin Beady. hello robin hi wow <laughs> a lot of build up uh yeah hey it's great no pressure no pressure that's fine <laughs> so i want to start with a question um, that's gonna sound a little bit like a neg, but I don't mean it this way, because I know a lot of people who are watching um, are, are folks who really wanna do what you do. And so I thought it might be fun to start with um, talking about maybe some setbacks you had along the road to where you are, so they can know, hey, it may not happen right away, but just you know, sort of keep chugging along. Uh, so I thought I'd throw this open. Let's, let's start with Courtney. Like, is there any project that you worked on for a while and just sort of, it went away. It evaporated. And how you how you recovered and kept going from there?
3: I don't know if it a project that went away. I've been fired before. That was, uh, was early in my career where you sat there and you're like, oh, this is a dream job. It's exactly what I want to happen. I'm making it all real. Oh no, I, I don't work here anymore. The show keeps going <laughs> to other people. And it's like it's a show that people know about. And you're like, and you're embarrassed and you don't know what's gonna happen next. And you sit there especially early. It was early in my career where you're trying to fight for every you know you're trying to build your own reputation and you feel like afterward i'm trying to be like oh what had happened was and this and you know and, you know it was difficult because then, you know i'm just explaining away everything and it has nothing to do with you being a writer whether you're good whether you're bad and there were things that were positive about it a uh you know like like the support all of this it's a very small town so like when i got let go i heard i told some people on the show i worked on before it's so like yeah you know I. I, I, I didn't get asked back for the back nine and this is kind of where it's at. And they're like, "That's oh, happened all of us. Don't worry about it anymore. You know? And that was like the kind of encouragement I needed because I was like, oh, these guys are dope. They have full careers. They've talked about being in situations like this before. And that helped. And also, like, because of the circumstances, there are a couple of people in the studio who reached out and were like, hey, we still believe in you. You know, and really so much of your career at the beginning is finding people, you're always trying to build fans. So your 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 work isn't always seen by the showrunner, your work isn't always seen by like the, the head of a studio or something like that, but the more fans you build, the the better your reputation is, and those are the people who help you get along, especially at the beginning. So like, it was, yeah, it was hard. Like I, I didn't know what was gonna happen next, but I you always lean on your community and you just keep writing, so. How
2: about you, Angela? Um...
4: Yeah. Like, uh, you know, the first couple of jobs that I had, um, uh, I'll just talk more about that rather than like development now. Cause if it, if it's more for people who are sort of like trying to get started, like, you know, the first, um, staff job I had, like, doesn't even show up in my IMDB because like a room was hired. It was supposed to be like a big, like mid-season show. And then it's like all the executives like were fired, the, season was dumped. Like, so sometimes stuff like that happens. And like, I had a full job that I thought I was going to be working at for like a a while. And it was going to be this big show that was like heavily promoted during the winter Olympics and stuff. And it just, it literally evaporated. And I think for all of us, like, we just kind of were like, shell-shocked and didn't know what to do. And it's, you know, our showrunner was really great and was like, listen, like, just start looking for other work. Like, I'll make sure you're all paid as long as possible. And so, you know, I made great friends on that show, like many of whom I still am in touch with today. Um, And, you know, like Courtney was saying, it's like, you're you're trying to build those fans, trying to build that support network. Um, And it's just, you kind of just have to get back on the horse and keep going. Like I just started going out for other jobs. I landed a great one. That one (laughs) disappeared after a season, despite being like critical favorite across the board, but just, it didn't get enough viewers at the time. and then off of that, I got The Walking Dead. So I don't know. It's like you kind of just. I feel like the industry has so many ups and downs, and it's like that. And just the thing that you hang a lot of hope on, a lot of times it does just go away. And I think like all you can really control as a creative person is the process of continuing to create and to write and and do that and um, trying to be a good person along the way as much as you can. And um, you know, and all the rest of it is like it gets into money stuff and executive things and programming schedules, and you can't control any of that. So I I think that's all you can do is just keep on making stuff.
2: How about you, Steven?
5: You know, it's interesting because the first show that came to mind is Pose. You know, I was pitching it for two and a half years and was in and out of rooms. This was post- working on an MFA in screenwriting at UCLA. And, you know, I was really idealistic at the beginning of my career. You know, I'm equipped with a master's degree and like a stack of scripts that I've written while I was in the program. And, you know, and when you're in the program, you're being told. So for anyone out there who's listening who's in an MFA program, a lot of the messaging is the industry can't wait for you. We need your story, we need your voice. And so then you come out with, you know, your stack of scripts that you've been working on for two or three years. And and nobody wants to develop any of it. And you're like, wait, but I thought, oh, okay, so you don't want my voice? Got it. Um, you know, and so that was really tough. Um, you know, but you persist. And I think that, you know, whether you're, an LGBTQ plus person or a woman or a person of color or someone who holds multiple identities. You know, the reality is like, it's sort of part of the kit, as I like to say, when you're born, that you have to be resilient and that you have to be persistent. Um, And so in this industry, if we're ever gonna have a toehold, if we're ever going to see any progress, um, then we have to keep moving. And so while it was certainly disappointing to go in and out of rooms and be told, the show has no value because it's too black or too brown or too queer or it's a period piece or i don't know who the audience for a show like this is you continue to move you forge ahead because the reality is that i think for all of us here on this panel it's like the career is so much bigger than just me like it's 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 me and everyone standing beside me and everyone behind me who's waiting to break in as well um and so you have to you have to
6: keep moving
2: Michael, how about you?
6: What's your story? Um, well, I mean, I was I was very fortunate that that my 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 kind of first thing, like I at least I got it off the ground miraculously at, at stars, and they they made me the the showrunner, which was an insane choice by them because on day one, the only person i knew what to tell what to do was the writer's pa i would because that was the only job i had had i was like i was like well here's maybe how the lunch orders should go like because that was the job i was comfortable with but it was just i'd had a i'd had a positive development process with them over the course of like 2 years and so they ordered a mini room and i was like this is great this is my meteoric rise like oh my god I, this is the first half of boogie nights i'm Dirk diggler doing the the roller skate dance and then we wrote we wrote the season and they didn't pick it up. And it, And it was like, and we couldn't cast it. And it's like, and suddenly after like writing this script that opened so many doors for me so early on, I like suddenly things got real and I was in the big leagues and it was so hard. And I was so overwhelmed by the pressures of running a room and just, trying you know feeling like everything weighed on these scripts and and all that and and so you know we didn't we didn't move forward at that time and that was very humbling for me because i was like wow i made it i'm the luckiest person in the world and then i i went back and i was like what am i going to do now and i went back onto rick and morty and the, the highest credit i could get was like i went back as a story editor and it was just like coming off of being an EP and running my own room and everything, it was almost like starting back at the bottom there, but it was so positive to go and to kind of sit on the other side of the whiteboard and like, just feel, you know, like, like get that other experience. So, you know, the, and so I guess the lesson there is just like, just grind it out. And now that show, like, luckily enough is, is still, you know, is, is getting brought back to life, but, it, but it's just, there are gonna be setbacks and it, and it just gets harder and harder the, the further to the top you get and you've just got to persevere.
2: Robin, I think we talked about this a little bit last year but I was wondering if you had any further thoughts maybe maybe inspired by your fellow panelists.
7: Yeah. What was the original question? What failures have we had?
2: Sure. Yeah. Roll out your favorite failures, Robin.
7: Well, you know what? Here's the thing, Joanna, you probably know this about me. I've never failed. Uh, right. I'm consistently right, right. successful. So that's not going to be something I can answer. No, I think, you know, I I always look at it as like, it's not failure. It's lessons. You know, I've I've uh, I am I, every year I get called a new, new voice or a new face. <laughs> Which is really funny to me it's been happening for 20 years and that's okay. Um uh you know uh I think there's there's uh what I've learned is that there's joy and some peace in being underestimated sometimes. Um it and as long as you're not being underestimated by the people who write the checks, right? Um so as long as you know the critical the critical success, the studios are happy your cast and your crew are happy, that's great. And if other people take a little time to get uh to recognize what you're doing, that's okay. Because then you get to have those mistakes without being under the scrutinizing eye of, you know, um, you know, if I if my first thing I had ever done was, you know, a sketch show on HBO at this level, like I, I would have failed miserably, you know. But this is my seventh sketch show. Now, you know, it's the first one I created, but I've written and performed on six other sketch shows over the years that have never made it past half a season let alone into their third as we are. So sketch is really hard sketch is very specific um but I was tested and burned and uh learned in the in the halls of late night for many years and 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 then before that in in 10 years of award shows and funnier die and youtube and and scripted television. So I have literally done every type of writing there is. Um, and including now, and in, I've got two features in development. And so it's, it's, I've done literally everything in terms of what a writer and a performer can, well, not in terms of what a performer can do. I can do a lot more, <laughs> but in terms of what a writer can do, I've, I've touched every genre and I failed in every genre and I've won in every in every genre. And that's just what the path is. That's just what the path is. And I think if someone is listening to this, who's starting out, the thing I always tell them is take no job for granted. Do every job to the best of your ability. Don't complain about that job and don't think you're not supposed to be there. Don't think you're supposed to be further than you are. Entitlement will kill your joy in this business. People have to, if you are a writer's PA and you're getting those lunches, be the best damn writer's PA you can be. But at the same time, you have to let them know what your ultimate goal is. If you wanna be a showrunner, Tell him I want to be a showrunner because then a good showrunner will say, OK, well, I'm going to find time for you to, ha- to sit down this season for an hour with our director, with our show, with me as the showrunner, with our writers. Like, I'm going to find some time for you to actually spend time in the writer's room every couple of weeks, If you know, even if we need you out in the streets pounding the pavement in the, for 90% of the job. So that's what I do with my staff day one, every time, every day uh, that we start a new season, I say, everyone needs to tell me what their ultimate goal is in this business so I can help you get there. But in the meantime, I'm going to expect you to excel at the job you have now. So, you know, and I think the only reason why I became uh, a halfway decent showrunner is because um, I've done every job. I've done every job and I've been beaten up and traumatized in all those jobs. And then I've had bosses who were really amazing and really great. I think sometimes the best way to learn is to see what other people are not good at and to watch them fail, um, in those positions, you know, smaller, big failures, but to watch what they do and then not repeat those mistakes. Um, in addition to having good bosses, but good bosses, they're more easy to come by now. But when I was coming up, it was a different world. I feel like, you know, that was the world that still let Harvey Weinstein get away with a lot of stuff. And, you know, all these, you know, powerful men were really abusing their power and there was still a lot of that old Hollywood BS that was going on. And, you know, we're not hundred percent past it, but this world is different now. And I think you have people like the people on this panel and many others who are really compassionate showrunners who want to, um, uh, who want people to enjoy their jobs, you know, and they're not just like you work for me, do what I say, and I'm going to abuse you and, you know, right. When you like grab the whole time. So, yeah.
2: Right. Well, like, and a couple of you, um, in, in talking about that mentioned sort of some of the pressures that you found once you found yourself in this position. So I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what aspects of being a showrunner, uh, did no one tell you about that you wish they had told you about, or that you weren't expecting, uh, maybe, maybe starting with Steven.
5: Um, well, it's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> It's very tiring. Um, You, I mean, here's the thing is like, you're wearing multiple hats. So uh, again, I'm gonna harken back to coming out of an MFA program because we spend a lot of time working on our voice and obviously cultivating our craft on the page. And all of that is wonderful. Like, obviously I think all of us on this panel have the careers that we have because we on the page know how to express our voice. We have something very specific that we want to say, you know, and in the case of Robin, she then gets to express that um, through her physicality on screen. But we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the business part of, of, the industry and so that was a real rude awakening for me was that oh i don't spend all day in the writer's room just talking about these characters and the journey that they are going on cool you know and so it's, it's a lot of conversations you know whether it's receiving notes and then finessing scripts or talking to all of the heads of the departments because you know the the vision you understand a character's motivation and all of that is on the page but then you have to now articulate that to every single individual department because they have very specific things that they're wondering. So it's wonderful that Blanca's stepping into the store to buy, you know, a new dress. But what does the dress look like? What is her hair that morning? What is it, you know? And so there's suddenly all these other conversations that you're having to be uh, completely enmeshed in. Um, and so, you know, that I think was certainly in the first season, the thing that I learned very quickly was like, oh wow, okay, like you're you just you have to figure out a way to compartmentalize all of it and very quickly because there really isn't a lot of time you know i think television in particular it's just it's a bullet train and it is just it's barreling yeah. <laughs> to the final destination very quickly and so someone. <laughs> <laughs> with or without you. And so it's like, you better have an answer. Yes. Know, it's like...
7: Well, that's the thing, right? Larry Wilmore told me this a long time ago and I had the benefit of learning under people, right? I got to learn with John Stewart and Chris Rock and Larry Wilmore and I got to be all their head writers and I got you to learn...
5: drop those names.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to pick those up later. Um, but, but you know, and they get to, and Larry told me the smartest thing he ever told me. I think about this all the time. He said, somebody's going to ask you a question like the first time you're the showrunner like somebody's going to ask you a question and you're going to turn around to look to the person who you want to ask. And there's going to be no one there. And it's just, you are where the buck stops. And Mm -hmm. so that the pressure of that, and you're exactly right. It's running a business. I tell people I'm the CEO of a fortune 500 company, like I have a million (laughs) dollars to manage, like, or to screw up, you know, like, um, and not as many as even any of you have on your shows. And it's still a lot of money to like, have to deal with. Right. And I'm dealing with hiring and firing and budgets and union rules and crews and all of that stuff while I'm literally putting on a beard to play a man who can't say the word. Yes. You know, it's like, (laughs) it's, it's literally an insane thing to do. And people, whenever I interview like my assistants or writers or whatever, they're like, I just want to do what you do. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not, you can't just learn all those things in this job. Like, you know, it's like, well, I went to school, you know, I've been improvising since I was 13 years old. I went to school for this. I did this. I worked at this job. I worked on all these shows, but I think the, the culmination of, I have a lot of sympathy for people like Michael, like you were out of that MFA program and Michael being thrown into this showrunner position. I I don't know how y'all did that stand on kind of the experiences i had watched and i still didn't feel prepared so i I have a lot of sympathy for people who are like thrust into that but i also have a lot of sympathy for people who feel like they've been rotting away forever without getting the chance watching other people mess it up but yeah i think you have to find whatever that is your path is going to be your path but you have to be as ready as you can be on day one and i think what steven is talking about learning about the business as much as you can only comes by working in production so you just have to get into that process at whatever level possible.
2: Arnie, mm-hmm. how about
3: you? I think, I mean, Ron and Steven are 100% right about, like, the. Pro- I think it's a weird thing that a lot of times people are like, oh, when they come out of school, they're like, oh, I want to be a showrunner. And I'm like, oh man, I've done this 20 years. I, I didn't know Yeah, don't that. do it. Uh, and it's just like, it's a thing. And it's not for everybody. I don't even know if it's for me yet still. We'll figure all that out. But, uh, yeah. but. I think the thing to the, what you're asking too, it was it's the amount of emotional labor that you have to do for others. You are not like everybody. It's not just making decisions about way things are. It's the way you handle it and the way that it you're managed. And especially this last year with the pandemic, like it was everybody is dealing with a crisis sometimes, and you're you're listening to and the more open you are to And it's part of what makes you a good writer, I think, too. But being able to listen to what people need in that moment, the better you're going to be as a leader, the more effective everybody is going to be able to be to work under you, all that other kind of stuff. But it hits you like you would not believe. We've had crisis after crisis over two years Mm -hmm. and three shows that I've been doing. And it's it's real shit. It's real life. It has nothing to do with making a television show. And nothing at all. And you are the person and it happens immediately and I'm, I was on blackish for 6 5 or 6 seasons before I started running it and the dynamic shift to the responsibility for all these people you have to care for was very real and it was very humbling I'll say certainly over the last couple of years you know and so um that was the most shocking thing about it I think as we've all matured as a culture I think that's part of the some of the things that we dealt with in the past like when I started, I never would have asked a showrunner for anything. I never talked to them about it. I'd have been like, like I would, I would go in sick. I would go in when I should be at a funeral. I would miss weddings. I'd do all that kind of stuff. And we live in a different world now, which is good. And we allow for these things. And you need to balance your need for everybody to do these things and people to have their personalities and go through their mental health issues and go through things and get the best out of people. But it's a lot. It is it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it will not stop. You know,
7: can I just say thank you, because I literally I'm in such a vacuum so many times that I'm like, okay, I'm not alone because there's literally no one to turn to. So it's like to hear you say that because I felt the same way we've I think we all made our shows during the pandemic. And it's like during that time, you're literally every single person on your staff and crew and cast are dealing with the hardest year of their lives, every single one. Mm And every single, and I'm dealing with majority people of color, mostly black women who are bearing the brunt of having 10, 12 family members die of COVID. Like it, it. let alone just needing like a mental health day, let alone wearing three masks and a face shield on set. I mean, Stephen, I see all your pictures from set and you guys look like you're in a hospital. You know, it's the same thing <laughs> we did too. And it's like, just thank you for saying that Courtney, because I literally, I don't want to seem like, you know, all oh, these are rich people problems, but it's like We feel humanly responsible for all of the people that work on our shows and it's devastating to watch them going through everything. And God knows what the five of you were going through, the four or five of us were going through, Uh, math is not my thing, jokes are, Uh, but, but you know, going through while we were doing this. You know, we've all had personal tragedies. I guarantee everybody up here had a personal tragedy within the last 365 days and you had to keep working.
0: Yeah,
7: that's a lot. It's a lot. A lot of people did. A lot of people did. I'm not saying we're special. I'm just saying that on top of that, show running now is exactly what Courtney's talking about, managing people who are all going through this horrible thing um, um, on top of doing a job that was already an insurmountable, insurmountable task. Really is
2: mm-hmm. no, absolutely, and I like and I'm curious about Angela because like Courtney, you had a similar, you had a similar experience where you were in a writer's room before you graduated to showrunner of this of this big ship. You're captain of the ship now. Um, you know, what did you discover in that transition?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think I just I like Courtney said exactly what I was thinking. I was going to say is like you know when you come up on staff. I had the uh, experience of like having gone through MFA at USC and we actually did get some business stuff, but it's so, it's like becoming a parent. Like, even if you think like, oh, I've taken the class and I've read the book and I've I've gotten advice. Like you don't know until you're in it exactly what it's gonna be like. But I, I do think it's like, it's this weird hybrid job of like, you're a CEO. Mm-hmm. You're also expected to be like the creative auteur, but really like, it's the emotional labor that like i was not prepared for at all like i knew that like you know everybody's like looking to you for decisions but they're also really looking to you for support so a lot of the time i feel like i'm people's surrogate mom or their emotional support animal or i'm their cheerleader or some people are just begging you for more structure and like they really need like hard and fast like i basically like they're begging you to tell them no or like exactly where their lane is and other people need a little more freedom or they kind of can't do their thing and so it's like you've got to figure out like what helps bring the best out of each person And, you know, this pandemic was so crazy. And so, like, all kinds of emotional things, heavy things, life and death things um, were happening. Like, you know, I have a very um, diverse uh, group of creative people that work on the show. And, you know, we're going through, like, social justice reckoning. Um, We film in a, a former state of the Confederacy. Like, there's so much kind of just um, emotional and important things that are happening that are beyond and bigger than whatever show you're working on. And yet it's like, the show is important because it gives structure to their lives. It's like how they practice their art. Um, it's, it's like a surrogate family in many ways for like my, my particular show. And I'm sure like many shows that, um, where people get really tight with each other. So it's just like that part of the job, like really like And I do think writers tend to be pretty, like, for the most part, like empathic people. And you're kind of sucking in everybody's like energy and like kind of, you know, really feeling all the feelings, um, much like actors do. And, um, you know, it's just, it, like, I love it, but it's also, it can be kind of overwhelming. Cause it's like, I've, you know, I struggle with like my own sense of like, how do I take care of myself and how can I take time off for these really important things that are going on in my life? And so it's like, it's such a privilege to have this job, but you know, kind of like Courtney, like half joke, I'm like, is this job like, you know, like you think, you know, what showrunner is. And it's like, is, did I realize like everything that I'm signing up for? <laughs> like, is this like for me? And yet I love it day to day too you know it's just it's a mix of all the feelings
2: yeah Michael correct me if I'm wrong but I think you took you know when you when you went to Loki from Rick and Morty you brought a couple Rick and Morty folks with you these are folks you had worked with before at least one if not a couple and I'm wondering you know what it's like to go from being sort of their colleague to being the captain of their ship
6: in that room I mean, in, in this case, it was great. He he was, this is a writer, Tom Kaufman, who was just a great friend of mine. He was actually a when I, he was already on Rick and Morty where I was just a PA or an intern and he's just somebody I like looked up to. And he would like, would let me come in and pitch jokes and stuff, you know, and, and, and like took me under his wing. So I like, I like brought him in as my like, support blanket, uh, to like, you know, keep me on track and everything and, and, and give me some veteran leadership, uh, in the room. So because we were friends that, that was, you know, that, that was fine. It it worked out. It's, it's funny. I mean, I agree with everything you guys are saying. It's like the, the biggest thing that, that I feel like I realized is there's such a difference between leadership and management. And it's it's easy to just be like i'm gonna be a great leader like I'm, I'm gonna this is this is a sports team and we're gonna huddle up and it's like yeah but it's it's not just that because you've got a bunch of different really talented folks who all maybe work in different ways and you need to harness their own creative abilities to help execute what is ultimately your vision uh for for something like like to and and it's just it can be hard and 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 so managing all of that and and because i do i agree i do think we're all empathic and everything and, it, and it's like you can feel the anxieties of of your writers and everything and, and especially like because you just you know you know what it's like to pitch something and and you want your idea to get run with and you know what it's like to pitch something that falls flat and everything and so it, I, I feel like the biggest thing about being a showrunner is just listening that that's what I felt like, like it's just all day. And you're just listening and cataloging in your head. What is everybody talking about? And you just have to be so hyper-focused on like, okay, what is, you know, where are the ideas coming from? And, and like, how can I make sure that my team feels fulfilled So, and, and try to build good chemistry like a basketball team. Like it's not enough just to hire th- all of the best writers on the page necessarily. Like it's, it's like you want to build a cohesive unit that really works effectively around you.
2: I think that's a great point. And in building these teams and building out these writers room, um, a big question we had uh, last year that I loved hearing the answers to was you know, if there was any advice for any writers out there who want to work in television, but can't move to L.A. or don't want to move to L.A., is the industry changing in a way where we're allowing for voices, especially in this sort of zoom forward era, uh, voices that don't, you know, work in this town, can't go be a writer's assistant on a show. Is there another path forward? Um, I guess I'll start I'll start with Angela, since you're you're based out of a non-California state in your production. Any thoughts on this?
4: Um, so, you know, our production is in Georgia, which I think is, it's really common, particularly for dramas to be somewhere else other than, um, where you write now, but you know, we do have a Los Angeles based writer's room. I do have one writer who is working from New York. And I think the big um, benefit he got from the pandemic is he was no longer flying to California and staying for a while and then flying back to New York to be with his family. He just does everything via... Zoom now. And so I think, you know, perhaps that's more possible. I think the thing that's tricky is that, um, it just really depends on the show you're on. Like my show producing in person is just a really important aspect. So usually our writers go back and forth. We haven't been able to do it during this pandemic. And honestly, that has been very difficult for both production and writing because there's just things that work better with that in-person human touch that I don't think Zoom totally Replicates. So we've definitely been able to like make this sort of thing work. But, you know, like I I don't think I'm going to move to like an all Zoom format for for the rest of the future. I just think like people being able to be in a room with each other, feeding off of each other's energy, like, and also having that personal um, connection just really like makes what is what can be a very sensitive job you know because you're you're putting yourself out there and it's like to have to put yourself out there to like little tiny 1 inch faces on a screen <laughs> it's just is really hard right. and i think for us at least we'd had some time together but i think it'd be really hard to um start a room and then run it for the long term like over zoom but that's not to say that like that doesn't that completely will shut out people who are working remotely there are people who like work from different places there're showrunners who like don't come down to LA and are kind of like remotely communicating so i mean we'll see what happens i think it, it you know certainly you can live somewhere else and be submitting materials like from where you are like you know, I, I remember um, Vince Gilligan talking um, to my class at USC about, like, how he was kind of living out um, in the East and, and submitting stuff and kind of going back and forth as necessary. So that's a move that a lot of writers make, but um, I don't know if we're ever going to go to a system where all writers are just spread to the winds um, communicating via, via Zoom.
2: Uh, Courtney, I hope I'm not uh, telling tales out of school or whatever, but before we started recording, you were saying, I'm dying to get back in person. I got to get back in that room. I, c- I can't hack this Zoom life. So tell me tell me about that.
3: Well, it's you know, it speaks to a little bit of like, obviously, Angela, everything she said was right. And it goes back to what Michael was saying too. So much of what you're trying to do is create a culture. And you can't, it's incredibly hard to create a culture through the internet. You know, I think the advantages will come like it used to be being out in los angeles it allowed you to rub elbows be a pa take meetings i think now you'll see meetings be able to you'll somebody will read a page to somebody's script you could be in north carolina or whatever get some meetings figure that kind of stuff out but i i don't think you can replicate what happens culturally online i think it also like one of the things we found and you know last year i was doing two shows and one of the shows was blackish and I had been there for years and we'd already had the culture. The other show was the spinoff Mixed Dish and I was new to it and we had new writers. And so I was actually in a bit of a laboratory where I was seeing the limitations of being able to form the kind of bonds that allow you to be vulnerable, to be funny, to build off one another because it, we never saw each other. You know, it's like also you think about a writer's room, you know, people are muted. Only one person can kind of talk at a time. These are not you can't tell body language. You can't tell, like, how people are actually feeling. It's hard to get sarcasm. It's everything. It's like the cues that we use as human beings to navigate the world, which is part of what we record in our scripts. And obviously on stage, we're missing out on, you know? And, and it's like, and it is, it is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly hard for writers to stay focused for all that time. It was, it was, I did one thing last year it was a panel uh, like because you know I had those rooms and I'd be chat jammer yammering away the whole time and da 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 go do this 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 then I'd go to another Zoom about something and I was always busy and then one Saturday I had to do a seminar and I was just supposed to watch and listen and I was exhausted afterward and I'm like oh that's what my writers have been going through the entire time they've been it's it's it shuts off part of your ability to have the fun of what the what the really the room is and some of that kinetic energy that goes so I mean I think ultimately I mean Angel I think you made a great point about like. People have been flying from here to there. You know, you figure out a place you stay with some people, your Airbnb a place and you say, hey, this is my job. Actors do it all the time for movies. You know, it could be glamorous. You stay three months in a place, you work on something, especially with these small rooms. Who knows? Um, but it is I just don't think you can ever replace what happens in a room. It, it just doesn't. And especially for comedy writers, man, I tell you, it's like that is it really 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 is a, a, like an energy that kind of like you know there's a synergistic effect to it
2: michael do you have any thoughts about sort of like a path for for someone who isn't coming out of la like is there what is the best way to sort of get that foot in the door
6: well i mean in terms of i mean i i do believe that one great piece of material can change your life like that is you know, like, 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 I definitely believe that you still, if you're not in LA, it's still, where do you send that? You you can't just send it to Hollywood at la.com. Uh, it, it, like, so, so it's like, that's, that's the trick, but I, but there is, there's stuff, there's the, there's the writers workshops, it, it, like the, you know, the, like the WB writers workshops, the NBC writers on the verge, there's, there's all those things, the programs and stuff like There's so many competitions and everything like those are, you know, those are great ways, I think, to get discovered because those are what the next generation of representatives are are looking for people on. Like my the guy who became my manager was an assistant who found me because he he was looking for talent on the community production staff because he liked community. So he was like, is there any any assistance or anybody on on that who's who's a writer? So it's like, you know, I, I do think trying to get in the game on some of those competitions, some of those programs for sure, if if you're not, if you're not gonna move out here, or you know, figuring out like, okay, if you're living somewhere where there is production, trying to get production experience if there's a movie shooting or or a tv show shooting you know trying to get just any kind of pa job because uh i I think robin what you said like knowing what you want to do and like having a really clear thing of like i want to be a writer like that is my that is my thing and, and just everybody you meet and, and, and if you have the political acumen to know when to kind of like play that card when, when, when it's like you've earned enough trust in a job or something and be like, hey, I wanna be a writer. Is there, know, it's like, you never know if you might meet on a job and a commercial or something. So I think just like, it's not, it's certainly not impossible and, and we're more digital than ever before. And, and one way or another, you can write from anywhere. And and ultimately, even if you're in L.A., what you're playing for, I think, is the opportunity to put forth a great script. Uh, And so you should you know, I think you can you can do that from anywhere.
2: Stephen, I wanted to ask you, like one of the reasons this came up last year when someone was asking sort of like what's a path forward for someone who's not based in L.A. was specifically this question of like are the voices in television too homogenous if they all follow the same sort of path? And so I was just wondering, you know, what thoughts you had on trying to open the door to different, to make sure that the broadest spectrum of voices available are being represented in television
5: right now? Oof, well, that's a big... I mean, yeah, big question. Small question <laughs> big for you. And, and, and oh, controversial stop question. it, Stephen, <laughs> <laughs> question uh, You know, I think that... Here's the thing. I think whenever we have conversations in this industry, whether we're talking about writers or directors, producers, et cetera, um, that we tend to get really micro instead of pulling back and getting more macro and then zooming in. So, you know, for me, I would say like the first place is that we need more gatekeepers who look like us. You know, so I think you look at the five of us on this panel, four of us are people of color. Like, I think that in itself is like, but is this really reflective and representative of the industry writ large? I would argue, no. (laughs) You know, like the reality is like, I'm still typically in rooms that are mostly male, mostly white, mostly straight, mostly cis. So, you know, the reality is like, we need to start seeing the shift there because, you know, regardless of how many of us are telling our own stories, and the truth is that there are plenty. Right. So I think specifically I'll talk about being at the center as a queer person, being at the center of creating a show that centers black and Latin, queer and trans people um, that I know plenty of queer and trans and non-binary folks, regardless of race and ethnicity, in this industry who are still working to break in right the industry would have us believe there's nobody there isn't an abundance where are they can't find them anywhere and the reality is no we're there it's just that you don't put any value in those narratives right you see our our stories as being niche and then there's this additional labor going back to what courtney was saying about then going into a room and pitching that story and outside of just having to have it's funny i just tweeted this earlier today outside of having a story that is filled with compelling characters and interesting themes, that we also have the additional labor of having to prove that this is a universal story, that regardless of the fact that this character might be queer or trans or black or Asian or indigenous, that now we also have to prove everyone is gonna love it you know, the majority is going to enjoy it. And so I think we need to see the shift from the top first. Like we really need more people who look like us in positions of power who are saying those stories matter because collectively we can write a million scripts. If they're not being greenlit, it doesn't
3: really matter. Can I just jump on that for one second? And one more Ah. thing, always whenever I get this question, I, I bring this up. We need to pay assistance better and more. Like, and that comes from the business and top down so that people later in life can ju- make the choice to do it. I think people don't have to be right out of college and living basically at poverty wages to be able to do it. The diversity of stories comes from opening up opportunity and pathways to get to what Robin was talking about too and some of Michael's experience too, starting at these things so you can get the full breadth of the experience. It's not like I wrote a script and now I have to rise and fall on this thing. No, you can learn at any point in life. And that comes from apprenticing. And so if we, and this is the thing I bring up all the time, every diversity thing i am ever on, and this is what the again, the, the 20th century foxes, the Disneys, the Warner Brothers all are gonna have to do is like the better we can do for the assistance for people that, that just getting their foot in the door, the yeah. more we'll be able to get it all across the board, executive ranks, all those things. We'll see this thing happen,
5: you know. So, can I piggyback on, on that on that point though? Because I think again, it goes back to the the notion of. We need people who look like us in those positions because there have been enough studies coming out of like the think tank for inclusion and equity and and other places where we tend to hire people who look like us. Right. So if the vast majority of the industry is white or male, then that doesn't leave a lot of room for people of color or for women, you know, or LGBT people, if the majority is primarily if the majority of the industry is primarily straight. And so I, I think that there's still a gap there, which is. You know, we need people who are then taking people who really are, are walking the walk and care about not just equality, but also care about equity. Um, and, and I think, again, like I, we all know what, what the issues are, right? Like we're talking about it now quite openly i think it's just it's there needs to be a shift and i i think the other big concern for me is because because the reality is like at the lowest level there is a traffic jam you know there's just a plethora of people and everybody's working to break in um but i also think that my concern and i i co-sign what courtney said my biggest concern around um these conversations is that we're still otherizing folks from historically marginalized communities, right? So when you look at like the programs, for example, all the diversity programs, it's like you end up being seen as just a diversity hire. And it's like, no, like it doesn't matter what my race or ethnicity or my class or my orientation or my gender is. It's like, I'm also a quality writer, just like everybody else, just like all my other contemporaries in the room, but those folks aren't being treated that way.
7: That's right. And what you're saying is exactly right in terms, especially of the way you put it, Stephen and Courtney, exactly what you're talking about everything from assistants to executives need to do need to have opportunities where it's not about equality. It's not about diversity and inclusion, even though those are not bad words, they can be misused. Uh, it's about equity. It's about understanding that my story, that Stephen's story, that Michael's story, the Angela's story, the Courtney's story, the Joanna's story, that everybody's story has equal value. The problem is for those of us who are not mainstream, who are not white, as straight white men. I think I said straight twice, which was unnecessary. But I think. The- <laughs> problem with that is that that is seen as the norm. And so everything else is going is going to be other and until we can shift the paradigm. Okay, Joanna, you know we do this. I've been very professional this panel but I'm about to get into the, the thing that's going to be controversial. Bring, it. I'm, Bring sick, it. I'm sick of agents and people in this industry and people outside of the industry. I have been asked countless times over the last few months is there any room for white men in the business anymore because the business doesn't want white men anymore that question infuriates me to no end i don't understand how what people don't realize the inherent racism in that question so if you're saying to me someone who does not control hollywood uh why what about white men they're not going to have any chances anymore and i'm like here's the thing the famous quote of that you know equality feels like oppression to those who have always been in power right but the chances for white men are not going away. They're just not. They're not going away. And the the only thing that's happening is we're making more TV than ever. We're still in an era of peak TV and more opportunities for people who don't look the way that showrunners and, and the stars of shows and executives have always looked are happening but just because there's one show called pose doesn't mean that all people who are who are in that group of 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 actors and and writers and directors are now representing oh a black lady sketch show because i think it should be one of many It should not be the only one, but yet it's the only one in history. That doesn't make any sense. So don't tell me that there's no room for white men in this industry when you can't even treat the people who are just now getting a sliver of more opportunities like they're not an other. We're not being seen as full human yet. We're not being seen. And I'm not talking about Angela's show because there are zombies on my show and they are not full human. (laughs) But for the rest of us... We're still being seen as other and less than. And even by, here's the controversial part, even by people who are the ones giving us the opportunity sometimes. It's the people that are saying, well, I've got to let you in because I can't let it, we've got a writer now at our network or, or a mandate at our network and we're not green lighting every like white male story. So we're going to do yours. Now this isn't happening to me and HBO is literally a godsend in my career. But I'm seeing this happening to friends who are like, They literally told me in the green lighting meeting that they were going to make my show because they didn't have anything else from people of color, not because they liked the idea or they thought it had value, but because they were checking a box. And that's not what we're asking for. We're not asking for that. No one is sitting here saying, please just give us a show because now you have to look like you care about black people or gay people or, you know, older people or whatever. We're saying our stories have the same amount of value And we're literally telling the industry, you have to begin to value our stories, even if they're not your own. And you have to get out of the way and let us make them. Let us tell those stories and let us make those stories so that the audience can begin to see themselves reflected in film and TV. And so that they can see a clear path if they do wanna get in this industry. And if not, so that they're just a regular, everyday person like we all are, but they're a person working outside of the industry who can enjoy entertainment. I can't tell you how many times people, and I know you guys have felt this way too. I can't tell you how many times people have told me I'm a black women. I never thought I could see myself on TV in this way. I never thought I would see a three dimensional character. And this is us on a dumb sketch show, you know, but we work really hard to celebrate black women in ways that other shows won't. Angela Bassett got nominated for an Emmy for my show in the first season. And she was like, you know why I did it? Because no one asked. No one thought to think of me to do comedy. No one thought I was worthy of that. I'm like, how do you like, you know, an Oscar level actor is not being able to say a couple jokes like that's just crazy because they don't see us in that way at every level from assistants to executives and all points in between. We're just not seen.
2: I wanna I wanna piggyback off of that and 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 jump to uh one of our questions from uh the folks watching at home. Um Christopher wanted to ask, you know, that so many of you have been involved uh with groundbreaking TV moments, and he wants to know how you personally handle the weight of I'm about to do the first blank. Um and I can think of examples for all of you in which this is the case. Um so I wanna start with Courtney though, and 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 yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> see if maybe you have any thoughts on that
3: uh i will say i i this is, this is funny it's uh i'm i'm probably not the best person to ask that question to because i just view the world in a way like i don't really I, I don't pay attention to a lot of the whole first what people are thinking expectations not big online all that other kind of stuff i just need my mom to be happy with it kind of that's like if she's like excited about what i'm doing so like the pressure of any of that kind of stuff doesn't really come to me. Now I'll say this, like obviously, you know, we did a, on the show, we did a Juneteenth musical a few years ago and um, and that got a lot of attention. And like, it's one of those things that we appear from people all the time. Um, you know, it's like, oh my God, I had no idea that this was such a big deal. And oh my God, I didn't know. And like, it was a real opportunity that was educational and I was doing a panel or something the other day and people were like, well, it was like the first thing ever on Juneteenth on TV. I'm like, Oh no, actually Atlanta did an episode right before us. And it was they was called Juneteenth. And they talked about Juneteenth. We were attacking it from a different perspective because of our audience. We were educating people on it, but it was like, it's there. It's never like, it didn't, we didn't invent it. We didn't sit there and like, you know, pull it out of nowhere. Um, but it was interesting to see that there was a dialogue of things being going on going on. And for me, that was interesting because I see, you know, in television in particular, I've only done sitcoms 20 years of, of that. And so you, you don't have a, a dialogue with your audience that much because you you write something a few months later, it's edited, it's aired, and then it's in the world um and now as obviously television and the internet and all these things have changed we're in more constant dialogue of things i think people's expectations are to be able to talk back and forth with the programming Um, and i think that's all very interesting my mind's still set in 2003 when it's just like "Eh, it's out there you know Um, but it is um so i don't feel i don't feel any of that pressure per se i do see our obligation and that's my job as a writer is my obligation has always been to get it right and to tell the truth as I see it and to listen to other people, other points of views, and use that to sharpen what I think we're trying to say. Um, And so it really goes back to the, I don't wanna let myself down as a writer. I don't wanna go back later. I think it's like, it's been really interesting seeing people go back and apologize for the jokes they've made on other shows. And I'm like, you knew it was wrong when you did it in 2003. You just got like, and people are racing certain times and like, you know, not calling anything out, but like 30 Rock did blackface three times. They knew they're doing. You know, like it's not, it's, we, and I feel proud in a way, even though we'll probably can go back and see some jokes I wasn't proud of in some ways, but like, I think for me, that's the thing that's always been it. It's just like it's it's knowing who I am, knowing what I'm trying to do, where I'm comfortable, telling jokes. I like telling jokes from people who like are powerless. Generally speaking, you always punch up, um, so it's never been a sense of we're the first people doing this or I feel pressure to do this. It's just always the pressure of a writer to try to get it right, you know, because that's how you're gonna. If you get it wrong, you're gonna you know you're gonna get it wrong, you know.
2: How about you, Angela? Do you only care if Courtney's mom's happy with your work or do you? (laughs)
4: Um, you know, it's so crazy because the walking dead, when I joined the show, it was a hit for AMC, but you know, I came on really early in the second season and I was like, you know, if this show lasts like a year or two, like I really like it I like the comic. So it's just, it's cool and we just we weren't thinking about it in terms of like well what do we do exactly for fan service like we care that fans enjoy it you know like we do think of ourselves like not only as artists but as entertainers and so we want to entertain people but i think in some ways like um as much as all of us are kind of on line because it's just, that's, I don't know, it's part of the reality of like working on a show like this. Although some of our casts have kind of opted out for mental health reasons. And I really admire that. Like, um, you know, I don't really uh, read a lot of the comments and things like that. There's a certain amount you can't avoid, but I certainly don't go and try to seek it out. Um, I think it's just, I think the moments in our show that have been most sort of memorable and some of the relationships that are most memorable, um, they came from the writer's room, kind of like doing things not necessarily what the audience was asking us to do. They're, you know, like one of our most popular characters now, when I came on, was one of the number one people that everybody online was saying, You should kill her. You should kill, you should kill this character. You should kill this character. And instead, we, paired her up with the person in a friendship that like became the most popular character when people were like he should be with like a hot lady and so and that's how Daryl and Carol wound up having like one of like the longest standing arcs because we were just like I don't know like I don't know if people know what they're asking for like what we see is two really great actors and they have interesting intersections of backstory about like abuse and like being you know like from this really like low social class and like what can we do with that and like that's the only way we can re- we really know how to uh, like if we try to hit what people think they want out the way that everybody expects and so um i don't know it's i i definitely i i want fans to be happy but at the same time like i think the only authentic way to do it is to like rely on ourselves as storytellers and you know try to do something that's not going to embarrass us and let ourselves down as courtney's saying
2: (laughs) Totally, yeah. And um, listen, guys, we're almost out of time, and that uh, depresses me because this happened. This happened last year too. So uh, I'm going to officially petition ATX to make this a two hour panel uh, next year, a real endurance uh, test. But we have one more question from an audience member that I want to squeeze in, sort of a rapid fire, if you guys are up for it. Which is from Ivy uh, wants to know uh, if you weren't currently show running your current show or a show that you know just ended, uh, what other show would you want to be show running? And yet. Yes, you can say the show of someone else on this panel if you want to curry favor with them um, michael walder let's start with you
6: um well for, actually first i just want to jump back to something yeah. Steven said that that stuck with me which is is just the the burden that that you guys feel to prove that your shows are universal that your stories are universal in a way that i just i don't have that that I don't have to do that in the same way. And, and it's like, it's like, that, that's, that's a thing, a thing that struck me when you said that. And, and I think it's just, it's incumbent upon guys who look like me, straight white guys in, in positions of power and everything to just be aware of that and and, and to work harder to amplify voices and, and to work on that equity and everything. And, and, and to just, uh, it's, you just, it, those stories are universal and I don't know that that was just such an eloquent way to put it that, that, that you do have to prove it somehow, uh, when, when you shouldn't have to. Um, so anyways, if, 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 if you're watching this, you look like me, it's on, it's on us, uh, that, (laughs) that, that that stuff. Uh, and then gosh, if, if I was, if I was not, what, what show would I be doing? I don't know. Ted Lazo is really good, but then I I might, I might ruin it. (laughs) I might ruin it. So um but I but I do love that one.
2: Steven, how about you? What would you want to work on or run?
5: Um I don't know that I want to run. It. I would love to work on Loki. Um cause <laughs> yes. I'm loving it. So good. Um come on. And I think that's the other thing, right? It's like just real quick. I feel like once you've done one type of story, then everyone thinks you only can do that. Right. So it's like right now I'm in a place where we just rap pose and the only thing coming across my desk are like, you know, queer musicals. Not even Ah, queer sometimes, ah, just ah. musicals, period. And I'm like, I can do other things. I can tell other stories. Um, So I love Loki. I also really love Generation on HBO Max. Those would probably be like my top two.
7: How about you, Robin? Oh, I don't want to run anyone else's show. No, thank you. Uh, yeah, that's not a that's not a goal of mine. Y'all got it. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. No, 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 thank you. Just, okay. It's a personal thing. You you pour your life. My my life is making the show that I make. It is, and I I have a production deal making other shows, but like this sketch show is my dream and it's my life and it's the thing I worked so hard towards. I just don't have a dream to run anyone. I'm like Michael, I would just ruin it. Like there's so (laughs) many, like oh my God, Loki and my friend Wunmi's on that show and she's so good in
6: the show. She's so good.
7: I love her. We had her on our show this season and I'm just obsessed with her. But that uh, yes, anything Marvel, yes, give it to me. Like I would love to run the Mandalorian, but I would ruin it. I would ruin it. I would ruin it. I would ruin (laughs) everything. So yeah, I I don't want to run anyone else's show but i am i am a huge fan of television i'm such a fan of all of your shows and what you've done to shift the culture and the and the impact and these audiences and you know it's interesting to hear you guys like say like the fans can't dictate the show we love the fans but we've got to be creative um dedicated to the creative because i think that's what makes your show so good
2: um, all right, so I'll be holding my breath for Robin Thede's uh, Mandalorian season. Uh, yeah, right, of no, don't do it, Disney, don't do it. Uh, Courtney, how about you?
3: I think it's just echoing off what everybody said, and Robin particularly, it's like, when you watch a show, you get a chance to be a fan of it. You know, like, I don't get to be a fan of of Blackish in a way, maybe in years, because you're so busy, you're in it. Yeah. So the show I would say that I loved watching uh, this last year was I May Destroy You. I thought it was brilliant oh. and wonderful. Oh. And, you know, just... Eller. Yeah, interesting and different, and like it's. I, I like still reserving a space to be a fan. I wouldn't want to write on it. I wouldn't. Oh. I, I just enjoyed experiencing it. So the yeah. more I experience things, the better too. It makes me a better writer and a better showrunner to see other things. You know, so that'd be my answer.
2: Yeah. All right, Angela. Other than Carol and Daryl, uh, what 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 would you want to be working on? I mean, I think
4: I, I'm the same. Like I, things that I'm a fan of, I don't want to run that show. <laughs> I, like I'd like to be in the room of better call Saul for a minute, just because I think there's like really great writers on there. Like, I, you know, like in the absence of like something that's come out yet, like, I think like, I would have loved to run like Lord of the Rings just because like, it's there's not something that's out there for me to look at, but anything that I'm watching going like, wow, that's really great. Like, it's great because of that showrunner and that mix of people that are working yeah. on it. Like, I don't need to go in there and mix, no. mess up that chemistry. <laughs> so, you know, I enjoy being a fan.
7: You know what's interesting? I think we get jealous of writing. Like I don't know if you all do, but I do. I go, oh, I wish I would have written that joke. That's a good joke. <laughs> but I don't get jealous of showrunners because I'm like, I know what it put, took to put together Wandavision. Like that looks hard. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Loki looks hard. Pose, y'all never slept. Walking Dead. I don't know how you're doing it. Courtney, God bless you. You have 18 shows. Like I, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. Careful what you ask for, kids. <laughs>
2: Well, um, hopefully we'll have all of you back at some point on this panel so we can talk more about this. I always feel like we've only just gotten started when we have to say goodbye, but thank you all for coming so much and sharing your experience and, and your stories. Thank you. Thank you. you.
7: Thank you. ATX (laughs) Fest.
0: Thank you for listening to ATX TV's original series, The TV Campfire.
1: To watch these panels and more, please visit youtube.com/atxtv. For
0: details on the festival, go to atxfestival.com.
1: And information on our membership program can be found at atxfestival.com/membership.
0: And you can follow us at atxfestival on social media.
1: As always, please rate and review. We appreciate each and every one of you for listening, and a simple click or a brief comment can help us grow, and other TV lovers like yourself can find us.
0: Feels like enough information, right?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Till next time, keep watching TV. Bye. Bye. (laughs)